this to me is the, is the true horror of religion. It allows perfectly decent and sane people to believe by the billions what only lunatics could believe on their own. Well, how do you feel after that? I would imagine that some of us might feel a little bit unsettled after hearing that. Some of us might be feeling intrigued and energized, like, oh, man, what are we talking about today? If you don't recognize the voice on that video clip, it is Sam Harris. And if you don't know who he is, let me share with you some things I think you should know about him. Number one, he's incredibly intelligent. And even if some of us in the room would say, man, I feel a little stung, a little offended by what he just said, I don't think that's his goal. I don't think he's trying to insult people. I do think he's being serious. And he's incredibly influential. We're calling this series The Great Divide. Sometimes we can be very close to people, but if we begin to get honest about our deep down beliefs about reality, we'll discover we're not really that close at all. That can be a divide. And some of us might feel like there is a gap between church and culture, and that gap is only getting bigger, and that can feel like a divide. Some of us, if we got a little vulnerable, we would say that there is a gap between what we believe and maybe what what our grandparents believed, what our kids believed. Maybe you're on the other side of that, and it's possible you've even shed tears over that gap. That can be a divide. And if we cranked up the vulnerability setting even higher... Some of us might say, you know what, there is a gap inside of me. There's what I believe and there's what I experience. And sometimes there's just a gap between those two things. That can be a divide. And if we listen to what we were told, what we heard in the video, what we're being told is that there is a gap, there is a great divide between reason and faith. And you can't be a person who takes faith seriously and also takes reason seriously. You gotta pick one or the other. It's like on one mountaintop is reason and on the other mountaintop is faith and you gotta pick. But is that true? Is that really the way that life works? Today and throughout the course of this series, we are going to stare down this question. Is faith in a competition with reason? Do you have to pick one or the other? And to really dig into that question, I'm going to ask you to answer another question with me, but you got to pretend. Did you guys come ready to use your imaginations today? You guys ready to pretend with me? I want you to imagine that you are in possession of a magic button. And if you press this button, anytime you press this magic button, it instantly tells you if your deepest beliefs are true or false. You with me? Now imagine this button is in your hand. Do you press the button? Do you want to know? If you're hesitant, you're like, I I don't know if I want to press the button. Maybe it's because, and you're thinking, you think really there is a competition between faith and reason. You got to pick one. If there's any of us in the room or watching online, you're like, you know, I wouldn't press the button because not knowing, that makes my faith superior. That's the kind of thinking that says, no, there is a competition between faith and reason. Let's go all the way with this thought experiment, and let's pretend that we press the button. And I want to talk to those of us in the room who would say that you're not a follower of Jesus. Those watching online, you'd say you're not a follower of Jesus. If you press the button and you found out that the gospel message is true, do you pivot? 
Do you now trust and follow Jesus? Do you give him your trust and your allegiance? And this is why this is an important question. Over the course of my life, I've had this conversation with folks, and, and sometimes people have said to me, Rick, I don't even care if Christianity is true. I'm not following Jesus. I would never make fun of somebody for that. I'd never insult somebody for that. But I think it's fair to point out their grounds for disbelief is not reason. Let's flip it around. Let's talk to everybody in the room and watching online who would say, no, I'm a devoted follower of Jesus. If you press the button and you found out the gospel message is not true, do you still follow? You keep coming to church? Am I gonna see you next Sunday? I want you to have this conversation around the lunch table today. Parents, what would happen if you had this conversation with your kids? What would happen if you had this conversation with your friends? What would happen if you had this conversation with a person that you're dating? Do you guys wanna know what I, how I answer? Can I share with you what I think? If I found out resurrection never happened, Christianity is not true, the message of the gospel is not true, I'm out, I quit, you're not gonna see me next Sunday. And sometimes when I share that, just that kind of that bluntly, people who are devoted followers of Jesus, they recoil. And maybe, just kind of talking about it this candidly, some of us feel a little kind of conflicted right now. And that's understandable. And you're just, you should give yourself permission and the freedom to feel whatever it is that you feel. But I want to I point us to something that, that Jesus said when he was on trial for his life. He was standing before Pilate and he said, I came to testify to the truth. And one of our church's guiding values is we take truth seriously. We're going to follow the truth wherever it leads. I am not a follower of Jesus because it's helpful. I am not a follower of Jesus because I like the lifestyle. I am a follower of Jesus because I'm convinced he's telling the truth. That the resurrection is a real event from history. And the biblical worldview provides the best explanation for all that we know and for all of human experience. And so to my friends, and maybe some of them are watching online, who have said to me in the past, even if Christianity is true, I'm not following. And for all of us who would say, even if it's not true, I think I'm still gonna follow. Could we think about this together? Belief without good reasons is being gullible. Disbelief without good reasons is being arbitrary. And regardless of your story, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of what you actively believe or actively disbelieve, you are worth far too much. And your life is far too valuable. Your life is way too important to settle for being gullible or being arbitrary. You're worth way too much to settle for that. And the people that you care about are worth far too much to settle for either one of these. The people who you work with, the people who you live near, all the people that you interact with in your life are worth far too much to settle for gullible or arbitrary. And it's one of the reasons, probably not the only one, but it's one of the reasons that people who knew Jesus best would write things like this in the New Testament. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. The guy who wrote this was a guy named Peter, and if you know anything about him, you know he was not always able to live up to this. He was a guy who was react first, think second, and sometimes his emotional volatility got him in trouble. 
The night that Jesus was arrested, he single-handedly took on a group of soldiers by himself. Later that night, he was so overcome with fear and doubt, he denied that he'd ever even met Jesus. Guy was a mess. But he was radically transformed. And the thing that changed him were personal experiences with Jesus after the resurrection. And he became a man who was resolved and steady and clear-minded. He was internally strong, resilient, and externally he was soft and gentle. And that guy says to us, always be ready to be able to explain what it is and why it is that you have hope and faith in Jesus. And regardless of the context in which your faith is challenged or questioned, respond with gentleness and respect. This right here should shape and frame the way that we think. This should shape and frame the kind of people that we aim to be. It's because of verses like this right here that we've just adopted this disposition, every question deserves an answer. And it's because of this right here that we just think that we should always be ready to happily respond with our best answers to people's most pressing and important questions. And it doesn't really matter what the motive is. Like, sometimes people ask you a question and you're just like, you respond to the motive but not to the question. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Even if someone comes in, they're friendly and they're kind, we're gonna give them our best answer. If someone is contentious and it feels like they're picking a fight, we're gonna give them our very best answer. How is it that no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the question, we can always respond with kindness and confidence? It's because faith is not in a competition with reason. It's a consequence of reason. Trusting in what is true. This comes straight from what Peter wrote. That faith is not in a competition with reason. As a matter of fact, our faith is built on reason. We should be able to explain the reasons that we have faith. And faith, let's be clear, is not pretending to know something we don't know. This word means trust. This word means allegiance. And we give our trust to Jesus or allegiance to Jesus because of good reasons. Do you remember the guy from the video, Sam Harris? Let's imagine that he's in town for something with mayo and you just happen to be standing behind him in line at a local coffee shop and you're wearing your Autumn Ridge swag. You got your Autumn Ridge hat on. And so he strikes up a conversation to you and to your surprise, he's easy to talk with, he's super friendly and he buys your beverage. So you sit down together. Are you able to share with him why it is you believe what you believe? Do you feel prepared to answer his questions? And you might be thinking, Rick, that's a dumb imagination scenario. That's never going to happen. You're right. It's probably not going to happen. But you know what's far more likely? Is that you already know somebody whose hesitancy, whose questions, whose doubt have been shaped and influenced by Sam Harris. Are you ready to talk to them? Are you ready to answer questions? Are you ready to share why you believe what you believe? Let's look again at what Peter said. He said, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. It's pretty clear what he wants us to do, right? That's straightforward. Can I ask the question, why? What's the why behind the what? Why not just throw Bible verses at them? 
Have you ever been in that conversation? Someone just, they don't really answer your question. They just throw you a Bible verse. Like, why should we honor questions? Why should we honor question askers? It's this right here. It's because we love Jesus. Because we love truth. And we love people. Can you see it in this verse? Can you see where this came from? Let's look again. In in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. We love him. We are in awe of him. We cherish him. Why Why should we be prepared to give an answer? Because there were reasons. There was something that convinced us that the gospel message is true. And so that's why we gave Jesus our belief, our allegiance, and our trust. We love him. We love truth. That's why we pivoted to him. Why would we respond with gentleness and respect for other people? Because we love them. Can we have some real talk? Is that okay? We can do some real talk. Anybody feel nervous about this? Anybody feel like, mm-mm, I want somebody else. Rick, that's what we pay you for. You answer the questions. <laughs> Sometimes we feel a little nervous about it. If you feel a little nervous, that's okay. You're not weird. It doesn't make you a bad or a broken Christian. What I want to do is I want to kind of diffuse maybe some anxiety that some of us might feel about being up to the challenge, about always being prepared. Does this verse say you have to be able to answer everyone's questions to their satisfaction all the time? Does this verse say you have to be able to resolve every objection all the time? No, this verse says you have to be able to explain why it is that you believe You have to be able to explain why you have hope. And because we love Jesus, and because we love truth, and because we love people, we want to give people the best that we have in those moments. And so it's your responsibility to be able to explain what convinced you the gospel message is true. It's my responsibility to be able to explain what it is that convinced me that the gospel message is true. Let's summarize it like this. It's not my job to convince you. It's my job to share with you what convinced me. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not your job to convince anybody. But it is your responsibility to share what it is that convinced you. Even if I was able to, I just don't think I have the right to try and control what people believe. I don't think that I have the right to try and control how people respond to what I share. That's above my pay grade. Like I just, I'm going to trust God to sort all of that out. But because I love Jesus, and you do too, because we love truth, because we love people, we're going to give the best that we have. How does that sound? Does that feel good? Does that feel like, okay, that makes sense. That seems fair. But this triggers a question for me. And it's a question that some of you might have. and You might even be feeling it, but you're not sure how to put words to it, so I'm going to try and put words to it. And here's the question. If I always have to be ready to give an answer, does that mean I'm never allowed to have a doubt? If you always have to be able to give an answer, does that mean you're never allowed to have any doubts? It's one thing to have doubts and hesitancy and questions when you're exploring faith. But what happens after you've declared faith? Are you you allowed to doubt then? Does it make you a bad Christian if you have doubts? Does it make you a weak Christian? Does it make you a fake Christian? 
I want you to think about that. And today we're going to explore an encounter with Jesus that is all about the subject of doubt. Turning to Matthew chapter 11, this is what we read. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, do you know which John this is? This is John the Baptist, all right? And this is John the Baptist's question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? First, let's make sure we understand the terminology he's using. The one who is to come, it was just an everyday expression to describe the Messiah or the Savior, the one who God had promised would one day come and fix the problem of sin and death. And so John is asking, is that you or is it somebody else? And I want to make sure that we not only understand exactly what the question is, but that we get the gravity of the question and we get how insanely awkward this question is. And if you don't know much about John the Baptist, let me try and fill you in. If you do, if you have been reading your Bible, if you know about John the Baptist, it's gonna, it's gonna be a little bit easier for you to connect with this emotionally. John the Baptist is a unique person from history. There hasn't really been anybody else like him. For even before he was born, God selected him for a purpose of preaching and getting people ready for when Jesus would go public with his ministry. And God was so with him, and he was so good at the purpose that God gave him, he was preaching even before he was born. And I know that sounds like I've been smoking something weird, but let me explain. John the Baptist's mom and Jesus' mom were cousins, and they were preggers at the same time. And so the first time they were around each other, and they're both pregnant, and you got John the Baptist's mom and Jesus' mom, both pregnant, John leapt inside of his mom's belly. He was just like, there he is! The Spirit of God was so with him. He was already preaching. And John spent his life teaching people and preaching to people about, about one day a Messiah's coming, a Savior's coming, he's coming soon, so you better repent and get ready for him. And he was really, really good at it. And I mean, thousands of people flocked to him. People would travel from miles around. He's basically a celebrity preacher. But he didn't use his celebrity to serve his self-indulgence. He used his celebrity status to point other people to a Savior is coming. And he was so respected. This is amazing. He was so respected. Even Roman soldiers would come to him and ask his advice. And one day, he's out. He's preaching. He's baptizing. He's got his whole team of people, and they're preaching and baptizing. And then Jesus shows up, and he stops the show. And he says, there he is. That's the one we've been waiting for. He is the Savior. He's the promised one. He's the guy that's going to take away sin. He's the guy who's going to fix it all. And then Jesus said to John, will you baptize me? And John didn't want to. He, he did it, but he didn't want to. And the reason he didn't want to baptize Jesus is he felt like he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals. He so revered Jesus. And I'm not even sure how to think about this or how to imagine it, but after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus, a miraculous way of affirming who Jesus was, and it also a miraculous way to affirm John's purpose and his life work. Good job, John. You got everybody ready. Here he is. And now he's asking, yeah, but is that you, though? What happened? It's important to remember John did not use his celebrity status for self-indulgence. He kept preaching. 
He preached a message one day that really offended the king. And it's not so much that it offended the king. It offended the king's wife. And so the king gave in to his wife and he had John thrown in prison. And at this point, it's possible that John's been in prison for about a year. Do you think that's how he thought it would go? John is in the middle of what I call the trifecta of doubt. He's got unmet expectations. He's got unwanted experiences and he's just unable to explain it all. And John, there he is, he's alone in prison. He gets visitors, but he's alone. And he knows what Jesus is doing. He knows what Jesus is preaching. As a matter of fact, Luke records a very famous message that Jesus gave and John would have known this. This is the message that John would have known Jesus preached. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to who? Where's John? I gave my life for you. You're going around preaching that you're setting people free and I'm here alone. Can you feel it? Can you sense the heaviness of it? Now, this is where we see the real essence of doubt. It's not as a casual, passive rejection of truth. It's here's one thing that I know is true, and here's another thing that I believe is true, and I don't know how to reconcile these two things together. I need some help. Here's something that I, I, I believe is true, but I'm experiencing this, and I don't know how to reconcile these two things. I don't know how to bring them together, and I need some help. And the real question is, how did Jesus respond to that? I could imagine Jesus saying, John, I don't got time for this right now. Your job was to get everybody ready to believe in me. Now you're publicly asking questions. Now you're going to slow down what I'm trying to get started. But did Jesus respond that way? No way. Jesus did not get impatient, did not get flustered, didn't get mad. When these guys came and said, this is John's question, Jesus replied, I want you to go back and report to John what you hear and see. He doesn't give them propaganda. He doesn't give them spin. He says, John needs to know what you know. John needs to hear what you have seen and experienced. So go back and tell him. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. John, I know that you're wondering why I'm not coming to rescue you from prison, but this is what I came for. And in that moment, Jesus gave John exactly what he needed. Jesus was referencing the promises that had been made for generations that one day a Messiah, a Savior is gonna come and you're gonna know that this is who he is because he's gonna do these things. And Jesus basically said, I'm keeping the promises. I'm fulfilling all of these promises and that's what John needs to go. No, so go back and tell him that. Would you think about this with me for a second? There's no shortcut for building trust, but there is a fast track. It's keeping promises. And you know this, right? If you wanna, if you wanna build trust in your family, make and keep promises. If you wanna build trust with your friends, make and keep promises. If you want to build trust in the workplace, make and keep promises. Jesus operates the same way with us. And he said, I'm keeping these promises. And that's what John needs to hear. He built his life on one day somebody would come and keep these promises. Let him know I'm doing that. Now, there are many of us in this room. We have built our lives 
on Jesus keeping his promises. And Jesus makes some insane promises. You know, all the moral mess-ups in your life that have busted up your dreams and busted you up. You know, your sin, the things, the moral brokenness and the regret that comes from that and the shame that comes from that and the things you don't want other people to know about, I'll heal that, I'll forgive that, I'll cover it all. And I will make you new. Isn't that a great promise? And then he promises on top of that, I'll give you eternal life. How do you trust in those promises? How do you know that it's not just something that sounds good? Well, it hinges on a promise kept, the resurrection. The fact that Jesus actually rose from the grave is the thing that validates all of his promises and validates our trust in him. If Jesus actually did get up out of the grave, if he rose from the dead, the most reasonable thing we could ever do is trust in him. If Jesus actually did rise from the grave, the most unreasonable thing we could ever do is not trust in him. Our entire faith is built on a promise kept. And these are the things we're gonna be exploring as we build up to Easter over the next several weeks. And I know that there are many of you who say, Rick, I know what it's like for Jesus to keep his promises in my life. He has forgiven me. He has made me new. And you're ready to go public with it. You're telling people about it. And there are some people here and you're thinking, Rick, I know, I've experienced it. He's made me new. I know what it's like to be set free. And maybe your next step is to go public with that, to share your story as an encouragement with others of how Jesus has kept his promise. And one of the most important ways we do that is through baptism. If you've given your life to Jesus, but you haven't yet gone public, I want you to join me next Sunday. I'm gonna do a baptism class after church. And, and if you have questions about why is this a big deal, why should you do this, come and join me. We'll talk about it. It's okay, bring your doubts. And if you are kind of, you're getting close to the line of faith, but you haven't yet ready to trust in Jesus and you've got a few more questions, you could come too. I'd love for us to have a chance to have a conversation. Earlier we read 1 Peter 3.15. Peter said, whenever someone has a question, respond with gentleness and respect. I'm astounded at how non-defensive Jesus was. Just gentle. But it wasn't just that. Peter wrote, respond with gentleness and respect because he was there that day. And he saw how Jesus responded. And Jesus was not only patient and kind, he was incredibly respectful. Jesus actually used this opportunity to publicly celebrate John. It says this, as John's disciples were leaving, they're walking away, and Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you see when you went out? What did, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? No, no, no. This is a real man. He's strong. He's a respectable man. He's a man of strength. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus used this opportunity to celebrate and demonstrate his respect for John. He said, this is the one about whom it is written. I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, and just for clarity, that's every person, there has not arisen anyone greater than John. He's the greatest dude who ever lived. Not annoyed, not embarrassed, not ashamed, not frustrated. John, I'm gonna give you what, you what you need and I wanna make sure everyone knows that I respect you. And then Jesus said something that feels kind of weird. 
He says, not only is he the greatest guy who ever lived, yet anyone who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Anyone who trusts in Jesus, who gives their faith, their allegiance to Jesus, is just as valued, just as respected, just as loved. And I guess my question is, I wonder how John responded. Don't really know because the text doesn't talk about it. We know these guys went back and gave John Jesus' reply. It would be a short time after that that John was executed and he was buried. But I gotta believe Jesus knew what he was doing and that John got all the comfort, got all the reassurance, the encouragement that he needed. And this is my guess, this is my speculation, but there's part of me that thinks that John might have responded with something like this. It's okay if I don't get my preferences because Jesus, you keep your promises. I wasn't promised about what my life circumstances would be. I was promised that one who was coming who would solve the problem of sin and death. And Jesus, you're keeping that, those promises and that's all I need. If I don't get my agenda, that's okay because you are keeping your promises. So my question is, will you give yourself permission to get honest and get vulnerable about whatever questions you have and whatever doubts you have, regardless of what side of faith you're on. Will you make it safe for people around you to get honest and get vulnerable about the questions and doubts they have, regardless of what side of faith they're on? As we do this together over the next several weeks, I want to share with you a resource from Pastor Tim Keller. And this resource is available out in the lobby. It's his book, The Reason for God. And whether you're a person of strong faith or you're a person that says, I'm not ready to give my faith or my allegiance to Jesus, I want to encourage you to read this. I think it will be very helpful for you. This will help you if you, have, if you want to be able to share your faith with someone else, this will help you be able to articulate it well. If you've got big questions, this will provide some of the best answers we have to the most important questions you have. And if you're thinking about, do you really want to read this book by Pastor Tim Keller? Let me share with you how he talks about faith and doubt. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or defenseless against the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. It's no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited those beliefs. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, be able to provide grounds for your belief that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. And just as important for our current situation, such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. So what do you say? Are you in? Can we do this together? I want to give us a way that we can respond to this today. Don't run from doubt. Walk through it. Don't run from doubt. 
Walk through it. Jesus will be gentle with you. You should be gentle with yourself. And we should be gentle with each other. And I want to ask you if you'll do something over these next several weeks. I'm asking, would you commit to being here? If you live in driving distance, would you commit to joining us, be in the room with us? And we're going to dive headfirst into some questions that cause people to doubt and even sometimes cause people to say no to trusting in Jesus. Questions like, how can I trust that God is good when he lets me suffer? We're going to talk about that next week. You don't want to miss it. Are there good reasons to really trust that the Bible is reliable? Isn't it a bit exclusive that Christianity is the only way to God? How could a loving God ever send people to hell? Would he do that? We're going to talk about that over the next several weeks. I'm asking, would you be here? And I also want to ask you, would you do this? Would you invite someone to come with you? Who is it that you love and care about? Who you'd love, you think they would benefit from being here? I'm just convinced people share what they love with who they love. Who is it that you want to invite to come with you and, and just say, hey, listen, this is what we're going to be talking about in my church. I'd love for you to tell me what your experience was like for you. I'd love to hear what you think. I'm convinced that this next month could be a very important month for our church. I'm convinced that God wants to work in us and with us. I'm convinced that God wants to work in you and with you. Faith is not in a competition with reason. It's the consequence of reason. We trust in what's true. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good and you are kind and you are gentle. And it's amazing the status that you give us, the honor that you give us through Christ. We thank you that truth is knowable and that you are not duplicitous. You don't hide. You want us to love you with our minds. You want us to ask big questions. You want us to dig in and research. You want us to know what's true and you want us to trust in you because we know it's true. God, help us to be people who are not afraid of our own doubts and afraid of our own questions, but wrestle with them and walk through them. And help us to be people who help others to do the same. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.